0: You are listening to the FDNY Pro podcast featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives.
1: Welcome to the FDNY Pro podcast. I'm your host, Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. As we do every year to mark the anniversary of September 11th on the podcast, we're featuring a member of the FDNY who responded to the attacks on the World Trade Center to capture their extraordinary recollection of that fateful day and recognize their bravery and resilience. In this episode, I'm joined by retired Deputy Chief Jay Jonas. As the attacks on the World Trade Center were carried out, most people viewed the collapses from the outside in. However, on September 11, 2001, then-Captain Jonas and his five firefighters from Ladder Company 6 were descending stairwell B with an injured civilian, Josephine Harris, when the North Tower violently collapsed around them. The collapse of the 110 story building took a total of 13 seconds and came down in complete pancake fashion, producing a tremendous debris field and strong air movement that lifted the firefighters and Harris and threw them about the staircase. Miraculously, they survived. Chief Jonas went on to serve another 21 years, retiring in July of 2022. Chief, thanks for joining me for this conversation. Welcome. Thank you. It's hard to believe that this year marks the 21 anniversary of 9-11. I described a bit about your story. It's uh, known as the miracle in stairwell B. But when you think back to it, maybe you could walk us through responding to the World Trade Center.
0: We uh, responded to the World Trade Center. We parked our fire apparatus right in front of the building. And as we were dismounting the apparatus, pieces of the building started to fall and hit our apparatus. So we quickly retreated underneath the uh, pedestrian bridge that connects the World Trade Center and the World Financial Center. And uh, we went back and forth a couple times to assemble all the tools that we needed, you know, and masks and everything. And uh, once we had everything gathered, we looked up, we didn't see anything coming down. So we said, ready, set, go, and we ran to the front of the building. Uh, there at the front door was an indication of how bad the day was going to be. There was two badly burned people on the ground right outside the uh, front door. They were in the elevators when the planes hit. And the vapors and the jet fuel went down the elevator shaft and ignited with those people in the elevator, so they were trapped. So now I'm faced with my first decision of the day. Do I stop and help these two people, or do I go upstairs and help a lot of people? I happen to see some EMTs and paramedics coming my way, so I just signaled to them and I pointed to the two people on the ground. I went inside the building, and we're heading towards the command post, and I see... Ladder Company 3 coming our way, and they're led by Captain Patty Brown. Ladder 3 had both the day tour and the night tour. They had 12 people. And And we uh, could
1: explain that. The timing of when the the planes hit the tower, when this alarm came in. It
0: was quarter to nine in the morning. It was 15 minutes away from the change of tours. So, yeah, two shifts. Couldn't happen at at a worse possible time of day for us than the change of tours because you have an ongoing platoon and an incoming platoon, incoming and outgoing. So we continue to the command post, and now I get online because there's a line of company officers waiting to get orders. I greatly admired Deputy Chief Pete Hayden at the time and Battalion Chief Joe Pfeiffer for the way they were handling this incredibly large operation and how calm they were in managing this. Rescue 1 is right next to us and Lieutenant from Mention 55, and uh, we're talking to each other and comparing what we saw on the way in. and. Then all of a sudden we heard a loud explosion and we saw pieces of flaming debris falling down outside the building. Didn't know what that was. I you know, just guessed that it was something exploded on the upper floors of the building we were in. And I thought that until a man came running in from the outside and said a second plane has just hit the South Tower. And now the, the lobby went silent and... Uh, A firefighter from Rescue 1 looked up, and he said, we may not live through today. We thought about what he said, and we stopped, and we took the time to shake each other's hands and wish each other good luck. It's great knowing you. Hope I see you later. Out of all those guys I was surrounded by when the uh, second plane hit the South Tower, I'm the only one that lived. They all died.
1: And you're in the command post. You're in the lobby of the North Tower at this
0: point. So... Then it was my turn. It was my turn to get orders. So I was the first officer to get orders after the second plane hit. I said to Chief Hayden, I said, you know, a second plane just hit the South Tower, thinking he was going to send me there. That's the only reason why I said it. And he just closed his eyes, he shook his head. I said, I know, I know. I said, just take your guys upstairs for search and rescue in this building. I said, okay, Chief. I gave him a salute, and I went over to my guys. I said, all right, guys, here's the deal. It's a raw deal, but this is what we have to do. We have to go upstairs for search and rescue. And we can't use the elevators because they've been exposed to fire already. So we have to do it on foot. The last thing I told them is they're trying to kill us, boys. I said, let's go. And to their credit, they all said, you know, we're with you, Cap, let's go. The crew I had was fabulous. I couldn't have asked for a better crew. Mike Meldrum, Matt Komarowski, Tommy Falco, Sal D'Agostino, and Billy Butler. They were stellar the entire day, and uh, we, we had it for the B stairway, which was the only one that went to ground in the lobby. The A and the C stairway did not. They went to like a mezzanine.
1: And also the B stairway was in the core, as opposed right. to the A and the C being on the Which, extra.
0: you know, do you think that that would have been the worst place for us to be when the building collapsed? But actually, it ended up being the best place for us to be, but yeah. I'll talk about that later. Right as we're about to hit the stairway, Sal D'Agostino was the youngest member of my crew, turns to me and says, Hey Cap, I wonder where the Air Force is and it was stunning when he said that. So I've been to thousands and thousands of fires in my career Never once did I wonder where the Air Force was no. when I was hitting the fire building stairs. Never came
1: up, huh?
0: Yeah, and uh, so we started climbing the stairs. You know, the stairs are relatively narrow. It's barely wide enough for two people to stand abreast. You know, we're actually rubbing shoulders with people who are trying to come down the stairs. So we're climbing. I had a plan of taking it 10 floors at a time. Stop at 10, catch your breath, get a quick sip of water, push on to 20.
1: Well, you carry, you started with all your gear. Extra cylinder? Extra cylinder, had everything, yeah. Was there a point where you made a decision, no, we can't carry this if we're going to get to... I think
0: once we got to the 20th floor, we dumped them, yeah. But I felt that plan would allow us to have some energy by the time we got to the 90th floor to fight the fire. Because it's not just getting there, it's getting there and functioning. So we made it to 20, and we're pushing on, and we're heading to 30. And at the 27th floor, I turned around to just do a little head count, and I'm missing two guys. So I said, all right, so the three guys I had with me, I said, stay here and I'll go find the other two. And I, they were only like a floor and a half behind. And uh, by the time we got to the 27th floor, the guys I left there were taking a break. I said, all right, take your break here. We'll push on to 40 next time and we'll stick to our 10th floor plan. I. Just happened to speak to two guys that I know who were on the floor. Andy Fredericks was a firefighter in Squad 18 and Captain Billy Burke was the captain of Engine 21, was a firefighter under me when I was a lieutenant in uh, Ladder 11. And I just finished saying hello to them and uh, that's when we felt and experienced something that nobody ever felt or experienced before. We felt an earthquake-like rumble and our building started swaying violently back and forth and then the lights went out. They came back on after about 30 seconds. We didn't really know what that was. I told uh, Captain Burke, I said, Billy, you go check the south windows, I'll check the north windows, and we'll meet back at the stairway. And I checked the north windows. All I could see was that white dust pressed against the glass. I couldn't see anything. So I went back to the stairway. I'm waiting for him to come back. I see him walking towards me, and he's got his head tilted, and, and he has, a, like, a funny look on his face. And uh, I said, is that what I thought it was, thinking he was going to say something fell off of our building, you know, because our building was swaying so violently. And he just looks at me with a straight face, and he says, the South Tower's just collapsed. Knowing what that meant, that thousands of people were just killed right next to us. you know, People ask me what was the scariest part of the day. This is the scariest part of the day for me. I had taken numerous classes in building construction and collapse and studying that for promotion. I knew prior to this day a high-rise building had never collapsed before. There were major high-rise fires in New York, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and none of those buildings ever collapsed. We had collapsed. a plane
1: into a building, the Empire State Building, right? Yeah,
0: back in. yeah. Now the sister building to the one I was in got hit after my building was down. So it didn't take much of a mathematician to figure out, we're, we're dead men walking, we're not going to make it out of here. So I I look at my guys I said, if that one can go, this one
1: can go, it's time for us to get out of here. And they balked. They didn't want to move. What was the conditions in the stairwells at that point, meaning were there still a heavy amount of civilians coming down?
0: Started thinning out. There were still some people coming down. Not as much as when we first were coming up. But there were still some civilians coming down the stairs, mostly aided by firefighters. You know, but my guys didn't want to go. I says, guys, I didn't stutter. I says, let's go. It's time to go. Turns out they didn't hear the conversation I had with Captain Burke. So they didn't know the South Tower collapsed. And so they followed my orders a little reluctantly because you know all they know they just climbed 27 floors with 100 pounds of gear and equipment on their backs. And I'm saying, it's time to go home. And they're like, what?
1: But they had to feel it had to be real once they learned the South Tower collapsed. That's what that violent sound was, no? They
0: never found out. See, I didn't know that they didn't know.
1: So they thought maybe, again, it was a part of, of the North Tower collapse. Right, isn't it?
0: right. All their actions should have told me, you know, because they were... This
1: is what you learned in hindsight, of They course. were
0: calm and cool and, you know, and so we started heading down the stairs. And we're going at a normal gate going down the stairs until so we got to the 20th floor. And there we see a woman standing in the doorway and she was crying. And my guy stopped, and Tommy Falco looks at me and says, Hey, Cap, what do you want to do with her? So I told Billy Butler, Billy, take your mask off, put her arm around your shoulder, give your tools to the other guys, and we'll stay together as a group and we'll continue down the stairs. People have asked me, that was like a, a monumental decision to make, knowing that the situation we were in. But that's what we went there to do that's what firefighters do. Somebody's in trouble, they need our help. That's what we do. But also it was keeping with what was going on inside the building. The people from the fire department who were operating were doing everything that they could for the people who were still there. So it may seem like a dramatic decision, but at the time it was not. It was, uh, this is what firefighters do. So we continue down the stairs, but now our evacuation is greatly slowed, and we had to step aside a couple times to allow a logjam of people to clear behind us. Now, as we're going down the stairs, I'm seeing other examples of courage and heroism unfolding right in front of us. The most dramatic one was a radio conversation between Captain Patty Brown and Deputy Chief Pete Hayden. Pete Hayden gets on the radio Command post to ladder three, command post to ladder three, get out of the building. Patty Brown gets on the radio and says, this is the officer of Ladder Company 3. I refuse the order. I'm on the 44th floor, I got too many burned people with me. I'm not leaving them. They stayed with the burned people and all those guys from Ladder 3 and the burned people were killed in the collapse. We continued further down the stairs and I see a guy I know, he was a, an aide in the 2nd Battalion, Faustino Apostle, Faust for short. I said, hey Faust, let's go, it's time to go. That's the right cap, I'm waiting for the chief. His chief was Bill McGovern, and, and he was supervising something on that floor. But the chief was his partner, he wasn't leaving his partner. And both he and the chief were killed in that collapse. We continued down the stairway, right around the 12th floor, running to uh, Mike Warcola from Ladder 5. This was to be Lieutenant Warcola's last day in the New York City Fire Department. He was due to retire the next day. He and two of his guys were working on a civilian who was on the floor. And I, I engaged Mike. I says, hey, Mike, let's go. It's time to go. He says, that's all right, Jay. You have your civilian. I have mine. We'll be right behind you. I said something to the effect, don't take too long. Keep in mind that I know the danger we're in. My guys don't. And I don't know that they don't know. They are cool. And I'm my inner monologue is freaking out you know that that we're in as much danger as we're in and i'm whispering in billy butler's ear billy can you go a little faster so we continue down the stairs and once we got to the, the 10th floor I'm, you know, I'm starting to think outside the box now i'm thinking jeez if we can't get out down the stairs uh, we have all our ropes with us we, we can repel down the outside of the building you know Plenty so i'm so start, i'm starting to think think of things like that so we continue down the stairs and we got to the fourth floor, and Josephine Harris falls to the floor. So I broke into the fourth floor looking for a sturdy chair. We could do a, stair, a chair carry with her down the stairs. Fourth floor was not a, an office floor. It was a mechanical equipment room floor. So the only chairs that were there was a swivel chair and a uh, overstuffed chair. And I'm way on the other side of the building looking for anything. And something just told me, says, you know what? This isn't working out. You're going to have to carry her down the stairs. So I start running back to the B stairway of the North Tower and I got a couple feet away from the door and it starts. The collapse of the North Tower with us still inside. The
1: noise the wind, what was first?
0: The first thing we noticed was the rumble. We heard the rumble that we heard when the South Tower collapsed, but then it collapsed in pancake fashion. Every time a floor would hit another floor it made a loud noise. Boom, 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 boom. And it created tremendous vibration in the stairways. The vibration was violent enough that we were bouncing up and down off the uh, floor and the stairway. Matt Komarowski, my tillerman, was waiting for me on the landing, and uh, the collapse created a strong wind because all the air that was in the building was being compressed, and it picked Matt up and threw him down two flights of stairs. I just dove for the floor and I just covered up and waiting for what seemed to be the inevitable. Then the collapse stopped and We are in darkness, and we are coughing and gagging, and I didn't know who was alive. And it was hard to process what we had just experienced. What did we just live through? You know, what what, what just happened to us? So I wondered who I still had, and I gave out a roll call, and all my guys were accounted for. I said, what about the woman? I didn't know Josephine's name yet. And uh, Billy Butler said, yeah, she's right here. She's right in front of me. So our first thought was... To continue down the stairs, to continue to go outside. And word came from, uh, there was a, a lieutenant, Jimmy McGlynn, and uh, three firefighters from Engine 39 were below us, and they quickly said, can't get out down here. So we had to come up with a plan B. It was right around this time that I heard a mayday from Lieutenant Mike Warcola, who we had just passed in the stairway, that he was... 12th floor B stairway. He was trapped and he was hurt bad. Sal D'Agostino turned to me and said, Cap, did you get that? I said, yeah, I got it. And I was trying to climb the stairs and the stairs were there. It was like a bad, vacant building stairway. There was debris in it. You had to move debris and climb up banisters. And I made it to the fifth floor and Mike transmits the second Mayday. And I keep climbing and I made it to the half landing between the fifth and the sixth floor. And Now the debris is so heavy, I can't move it. And, uh... He gave out a third Mayday, and finally I just said, "Sorry, Mike, I can't help you," and uh, went back down the stairs. So now we're trapped, you know, which is something that a New York City firefighter doesn't experience very often. Usually, you're on the other side of that equation. Somebody's in trouble, you go get them. Now, now we're the ones that are needed help. We're trying to find a, a way out for ourselves, and finally, we came to the realization: this is I'm going to have to transmit my own Mayday. And I did. I transmitted my own May Day. And uh, Tom Haring from the 6th Division responded to our May Day pretty quickly. And he said, all right, Ladder 6, we got you. North Tower, B, Stairway, 4th floor. I says, all right, things are looking up. They'll be here any minute, you know. And uh, we have
1: no idea what it looks
0: like I can't outside. imagine.
1: Now we're going to have to touch on that later.
0: No idea. I could see the look of concern in the, the faces. And uh, I said, guys, look, if we survive that, we're not only going home, but we're going home today. And uh, I started hearing from uh, guys who were in the search party to look for us. You know, outside, you know, you're talking to guys who were part of that search party who were relatively familiar with the World Trade Center complex. There were no landmarks. The yeah. landmarks were gone. You had to physically remember where the Hudson River was yeah. so, you, so you could figure out.
1: Yeah, You telling them you were in Stale O.B. probably meant absolutely nothing on the outside. Yeah.
0: During my radio conversations with these people, one guy said, where's the North Tower? I'm thinking, I was like, what the hell are you talking about? I was in conversation with not only some of the most competent people I know, but some of them were my close friends. John Salker, he was a chief in the 18th Battalion, and uh, he says, Battalion 28 to of 6, is this Jay Jonas? I said, yeah. I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, the 18th Battalion's here. My good friend Cliff Stabner, he, he would get on the radio, and he says, Rescue 3 to Ladder 6, Captain Jay Jonas, this is Cliff. I'm coming to get you. Where are you? And I'd repeat, you know, North Tower B, Stairway 4-4. And they'd ask other questions. And he would end every conversation by saying, I'm coming for you, brother. I'm coming for you. It was the only time I got emotional the whole day because it was almost like thinking to myself, I'm not worthy of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're in that stale, that's what you need to hear, right? Yeah.
0: That, that, there's got to be somebody in worse shape than we are. We were banged up, and but, but we were...
1: Which is amazing, by the way. Just banged up. Yeah. yeah
0: and... There's got to be somebody in worse shape than we are, but I I kept hopping on the guys. Says, they're they're coming to to get us. You know it's 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 gonna happen. You know we're, we're going home today. Time really flew by. We had a couple bumps in the road when we were in the stairway. There was an explosion that happened nearby. It shook the stairway and rubble started to fall and strike us. And um, it was the only time Josephine Harris lost her composure the whole day. You know she started crying. She said she was scared. I uh, said, so, you know, look, we're all a little scared, darling. you know, just hang in there. And, uh, and she did. But what allowed her to do that was, you know, this ended up being my last run as a captain a lot of Lata six. And I was a captain there for almost eight years. But I looked upon my guys like a loving parent would look upon their kids. They do something good and you're proud of them. And uh, during the collapse, Mike Meldrum rolled his body on top of Josephine to shield her from the debris falling down. Sal D'Agostino took his turnout coat off and put it over, and he told her, he says, nothing's going to happen to you as long as we're here. We're gonna get you home. They kept talking to her to take all her mind off what was an impossible situation for us, let alone somebody like her who's not used to operating in calamity. So our entrapment lasted between four and five hours, about four and a half hours. And uh, all of a sudden, I see a ray of sunshine hit the Why stairway. Why is that? Because
1: the dust cleared, or is the it- smoke
0: and dust cleared outside to the point where all of a sudden, like I could, I could look up through the rubble. I could see a little sliver. So there was an opening. Sliver of blue sky, and I was like, "Guys, there used to be 106 floors over our heads. Now I see a, a sliver of blue sky." I said, "I think we're on top of the World Trade Center." It gradually got clearer and clearer, and. Uh, we found an area in the rubble where we could breach a hole with our tools, and we could see outside. We had a battalion chief trapped with us from the 11th Battalion. So we waited till the smoke and dust cleared a little bit more, we could see a couple firefighters off in the distance. So, all right, we'll tie you off with the life-saving rope, and you make contact with those two guys. They tie off the rope there, I'll tie off the rope here, and I'll start sending people out on a rope which is what we did. Those two firefighters came up to the stairway, and they were led by Lieutenant Glenn Rowan from Ladder 43. They were looking at us like we were ghosts or something. I gave him a briefing. I said, all right, this is what we got. I told her about Josephine. She wasn't walking before the collapse, so she's certainly not walking now. So you're going to need a Stokes basket stretcher and some fresh people to take her out. He said, okay. We have a battalion chief who's on the ground floor, who we couldn't get to. His name was Richard Prunty. We couldn't get to him because he's on the other side of the rubble. As a matter of fact, they got to him the next day because they had to use torches in order to get to him. He was going into shock every time we spoke to him, and we haven't heard from him in about an hour. And I says, oh, and early in the collapse, we got a mayday from ladder 5, Lieutenant Mike Warcola. He said he was on the 12th floor B stairway. And he stopped and he gave me a look. And the look was that the 12th floor didn't exist anymore that his mayday was really coming from the rubble. It wasn't from the uh, 12th floor. So uh, we exit the stairway. Couldn't believe what we were seeing when we exited. Definitely looked like we were just bombed. All that was left of our building was the characteristic arches of the facade. Numbers 4, 5, and 6 World Trade Center. Those seven story buildings were in flames. Number 7 World Trade Center. The high rise was on fire. And there's smoke and fire coming up out of the rubble. Oh my God,
1: I can't imagine that first look and the magnitude of what you saw. Because it was one thing to respond after the collapse, knowing how the buildings collapsed, and you knew, you know, it was yeah. still, it was still a, an unbelievable sight and hard to grasp the magnitude. But being inside of it and stepping out, I, I could only imagine that images etched into your memory. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: it was like, oh, I, I can't believe we survived this. But we're still not out of danger. We still had to push on and get out. So we started making our way across the rubble. I wanted to be the last one. I'm watching all the people that were in the stairway. It was like a snake line going across the rubble. And we got to this one point where you had to walk across a steel beam to cross over a ditch. And now there was all kinds of people coming in off-duty and coming from the outer boroughs. There'd be a firefighter coming in. And this went back and forth till I was the last one. And I went to get on the, the beam... And a firefighter would get on. I'd let him come in. And this happened a couple of times. Finally, the third time, I got on the beam and another guy got on. I says, hey, brother, you mind if we get out of here? And he looked up and he saw the ladder six front piece. And he says, oh, my God, you're the guys. I says, yeah, we're the guys. We're going home.
1: This day, like I said.
0: Yeah. Naturally, he let us go. And uh, we made it to the base of what was once West Street and... The firefighters on West Street were dropping ladders. They were dropping ropes down to guys who were trying to make it up the rubble. And I'm standing at the base. One by one, I got to see my people make it to West Street. I felt once they made it to West Street, that's where the ambulances were. They were going to be okay. And so that was a very satisfying part of the day for me. But then it was just me and Mike Meldrum left. And Mike was my senior guy, and he got banged up pretty good. He looks at me and says, Cap, I can't climb the rope. I said, yeah, you can, Mike, climb the rope. He says, no, you don't understand, I can't do it. And I says, Mike, I can't leave without you. you got to climb. He says, leave me, leave me behind. So I had to think on my feet, I says, Mike, you see that hill? He says, yeah. I says, your wife and kids are on the other side of that hill. Climb the rope. And he did. He mustered the strength to overcome his pain, and he climbed the rope. And then I did. And I made my way over to the uh, command post, which is now... Jim D. Domenico and Pete Hayden were standing on the roof of a fire department pumper that was still hooked up to a hydrant, but they wanted to be high so they could see across the debris field. And there's a couple hundred firefighters surrounding this, this pumper. It took me a couple seconds to to get his attention, and he looked down at me. I looked up at him. We both started crying at the same time. Who's that? Pete Hayden. He says, Jay, it's good to see you. I says, yeah, it's good to be here two of my guys were moved to hospitals right away matt kamarowski and billy butler the rest of us were getting treatment at, a, at an ambulance you know while we were there I, I had two poignant conversations one was with tommy falco one of my guys he says hey cap how many guys do you think we lost here today i said i don't know maybe a couple hundred and i i caught myself when i said that i said what did i just say you know prior to the that day, the greatest life loss we had was 12 at the 23rd Street Collapse, and I just had a couple hundred, and it turns out I was way off. It was 343. Then I had uh, a conversation with uh, a guy I knew who was a contemporary of mine, Jimmy Ritchie's. He said, did you see Engine 4 today? I thought about it, and, no, I can't say I saw Engine 4 today. He said, oh, he says, uh, my son was working in Engine 4 today. I was like, oh, my God, this is... This is going to be cataclysmic for the fire department. How many uh, sons are on the fire department? Their dads are still on the fire department. They get a fathers searching for their sons, sons searching for their fathers. And, and that's what happened. Brothers searching for brothers.
1: And uh, that's what came to be. So that was pretty much the day. I've known about, quote, Miracle and Stairwell B., But I've I've never known all the details. And I also never knew how many people I've worked with since. (laughs) Yeah. On the outside, that may seem strange. But in our department, there were a lot of stories that day.
0: Yeah. If you were alive that day, you have a September 11th story. Everybody knows what they were doing and the fear that they felt and the dread of what's coming next. If you were a firefighter that day, you know what it was like going into that and seeing this mushroom cloud of smoke and dust and the smells and everything. That's embedded in your brain. You know, Mm. you can't get rid of that.
1: They call it the miracle and say, well, B, I can't help but think about it. We just did a podcast a few months back with a young officer in Queens who's trapped in a one-story taxpayer collapse, right. 10 feet from the rear door. And he was severely injured, and it couldn't have gone either way. It is a miracle that that many people live in a 110-story building collapse. I'll watch
0: footage of the collapse on television now, and I just shake my head, knowing that firefighters don't survive one-story garage collapses. Right. How many people in the history of the New York City Fire Department have been killed under those circumstances? So, uh, yeah, I just shake my head, you know, and considering where we were, we were in the the geographic center of that building. The b stairway was the center of the building, and you would think that would be the worst place to be, Mm. but it ended up being the best place to be. Because the way the building collapsed, it kind of peeled away like a banana, and we were the core, the core at, at the bottom of the banana. Yeah. You know, didn't know it at the time, but that was the best place to be.
1: You talked about 9 11 being last run as a captain. Yeah. You're on the battalion chief's list. Yeah, I was
0: number 18 on the list. Yeah.
1: And then you rolled right in. You stayed down the second battalion at the time, right?
0: It was kind of a securitist route. You know, uh, f- first they just assigned you by alphabetical order because yeah. it was Side chaos. Down. Yeah. So I, I, I bounced for about six months. I got a spot in the second battalion. Yeah, it
1: wasn't much bouncing back then. No. Right. So now you're down in the second battalion. You're in a great rank. You're a battalion chief. The department was going through a massive rebuilding process. Is, is that what influenced you to get back into books and seek another promotion?
0: Yes and no. I made a conscious effort to stay. If I retire right now, I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life going to see psychiatrists. I, I think I got to go to the firehouse kitchen. For me, that was the right move. For me, that was perfect. Just trying to reestablish normalcy. Okay, that was a, a horrible event. Let's try to get as normal as possible and, and move on. You know, soon after I was a battalion chief, the deputy's test was coming up, maybe a couple of years post 9-11, and um, had a hard time focusing. My wife was a physical therapist, and she was treating Harry Norum's mother. And Harry Norum, for those of you that don't know, was a legendary chief in the New York City Fire Department. As he was picking up his mother from her physical therapy office, he says, "You know, I don't know if your husband remembers me or not." I said, well, I'm pretty sure he remembers you." He said, "Well, how's he doing?" He says, "Well, he's trying to study for deputy, but he's having a hard time studying." And he says, "Give me his phone number." Ten minutes later, he gives me a call. He says, "You have to study for deputy. If you like being a captain, you're gonna like being a deputy. You're handling similar things." Uh, except on a larger scale is you know the job needs good experienced deputy chiefs now and uh, there are guys you know and love whose sons are on the job now and, and you you can't leave them and not rise to that position so he, he talked me into it so I I studied hard for six months and I, I did okay you know it was number 33 on the list
1: yeah it' was part of the rebuilding process they had to replenish all the ranks.
0: Yeah, and they were needing people who had some time and experience under their belt. One of the greatest attributes to my career was I spent a significant amount of time in every rank. And that means something, you know, so I can mentor other officers when they had problems. And I said, geez, I had a similar problem and this is
1: how I handled it. Now I've been up in the 7th Division as a chief over 12 years. I read a lot of uh, Division 7 safety newsletters. Yeah. (laughs) When did you start that? What year?
0: 2014.
1: 14, okay.
0: Yeah. And what happened was Jim O'Rennan retired, and Joe Sassante rose to the rank of division commander. He said to me, this is what I want you to do. He says, I want you to make the 7th Division the best trained division in the job. And I I looked at him and I says, you've just unleashed forces you can't understand. (laughs) We'll and uh, I talked to some officers. And I says, "What's your biggest impediment in, in drilling?" I says, "Well, I don't know what to drill on." "It's all right. I'll give you something to drill on." And that's when I started doing it. The first couple of newsletters were one or two pages. They were short and no pictures. You know, it was just like training tips and stuff. Then I started getting into writing about the fire stories, and uh, they exploded. I knew I had something because the firefighters, yeah, I would talk to the firefighters in the kitchen, and they would ask, well, what was it like when you got on the job? I would try to explain it to them, so there was this great curiosity about the history of the fire department, and like in one of Vinnie Dunn's books, it says, in order to survive on this fire department, you have to know how people died. If you understand the pitfalls of being a New York City firefighter, you can maybe avoid them, so that's how they came to be, you know, and, uh, yeah, I send them out, and they become a labor of love. And uh, I get emails from people all around the country who who read them. They tell me, I says, oh, you know, we love them. We love reading them. I says, well, I'm glad because I'd be writing them if nobody was reading them because I'm enjoying writing them. If that's what I'm known as being retired is the guy that wrote the newsletters, then I'm happy.
1: You retired from the department two months ago today, in July of 2022, just two months before aging out. And for those of our audience that don't know, age 65 is your last day in the fire department, correct? Right. Why did you choose to separate two months prior before aging out?
0: A lot of the landmarks that I had set for myself had come and gone. I wanted to be on the fire department for my 40th anniversary. I met that that a while ago. I wanted to be on the fire department for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I met that. I wanted to be a deputy for 15 years. I met that. So um, rather than wait for the last minute and say, there's the door, Chief. You've had a great career. Get out. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of went on my terms. You know, we have a new granddaughter, and we could spend more time with her, and we've had a good summer. And uh, so uh, it was the right time for me to go.
1: Chief, you've had quite a run. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah.
1: 43 years?
0: Just about 42 and eight months, you know, um it was an adventure. I have no regrets about staying as long as I did. I loved it. I'm going to miss it terribly. going to miss the people that worked for me. And I was a chief officer for 20 years. And I had the best seat in the house for some of the greatest firefighting and heroic deeds that anyone could see. I had a front row seat watching firefighters in the Bronx take care of what they had to take care of in Manhattan, too, when I was a battalion chief. And uh, it was an honor and privilege to lead them.
1: Yeah, well, listen, I'm uh, I'm glad we had the opportunity to work together. I could think of a few memorable ones off yeah. the top of my head. Yeah, I appreciate you sitting down with us today. You know, it's really just good to have a historical record of your story. Yeah, that's going to live. You well, know, oh,
0: thank and... you. You know, it was uh, it was uh, it was one day in my career, and it was a horrible day, and uh, would never want to do it again. But I was I feel privileged that I was amongst those that gave their lives that day. I was able to see what they were doing and how they approached that day is nothing short of remarkable. That uh, under the most severe stress that you could possibly imagine, they were functioning. They were performing heroic deeds. Everything that was good about the fire service was on display that day. And uh, I was never so proud to be a firefighter as I was that day.
1: That's saying a lot. So with that... Thanks for having us. Very good.
0: Thanks for coming up.
1: We did a senior member profile of Chief Jonas in the fall of 2021 issue with the WMIF magazine. Thanks, everyone, for uh, listening to this episode of the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. For more training and information from our department's subject matter experts, go to FDNYPro.org.
0: FDNY Pro is online at FDNYPro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest.